Hey, welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting and enjoying a cup of coffee, or doing whatever it is that you do, I am glad you're here. Hey everybody, welcome to the Brewcast. I'm joined today by the Reverend Abby Mohop, who I've had the pleasure of knowing actually for a few years now. She is a minister of Warden Sacrament in the Presbyterian Church USA. She's also a PhD student at Drew University in New Jersey, where she is studying ecofeminism, race theory, and embodied pedagogy, all from a perspective of the Reformed faith, the Reformed theology. She's also a farmer in North Texas, focusing on sustainability, and she's the director of education and training with Green Faith, as well as the moderator of Fossil Free PC USA. And of course, in her spare time, she is an adjunct professor at McCormick Theological Seminary, teaching vocation and discernment. Her ministry has been at the intersections of ecofeminism, social justice, and spirituality, and has written a number of pieces for Sojourners Magazine, uh, the PCUSA's online journal Unbound, as well as Ecclesio. Uh, Abby, welcome to the Brewcast. Thanks, Eric. I'm glad to be here. So tell me quickly about yourself. Where did you grow up? What was it like? How did? What's your call story? How did you come to be doing what you're doing in ministry? Yeah, so short. the short version of that story is that I grew up um, w- with two sisters and, and two parents. Um, my mom worked full time and my dad was the stay at home parent. And, um, he, between the two of them, they taught us how to garden and taught us about preserving food. I have a really vivid, um, um, memory of my mom teaching us how to freeze the plethora of zucchini that we got in our garden. Um, and my dad taught us how to compost, um, and growing up in Northern Illinois, it's snowed really a lot in the winter and have, and I have a vivid memory too, of, um, learning to, to shovel a path to the compost pile, um, because we were always putting stuff in the compost pile, always making soil. Um, and I, you know, it wasn't until I was much older when I realized that it was against um, social norms that my dad was the stay-at-home parent, um, and um, and I also had this really incredible experience of um, going to schools where um, people who are white were um, mixed in with people of various um, not white identities um and having from a very young age to to talk about racism and think about racism um and being really informed by that um from like first grade on yeah so those pieces i knew those pieces kind of helped me understand that what i was called to so my call to ministry came really deeply out of that sense of being a kid and being connected to um, people who didn't look like me um and 
being connected to the earth and and the privileges associated with both of those ways of growing up. And when I was 14, I had a, a deep sense of a uh, call that, that God was calling me to, to be challenged, um, to love other people and to love the earth and to love God. And, um, and so I knew just about then that I was going to go to seminary. Um, and, um, kind of made a lot of educational and personal decisions so that when I was 22, I started at McCormick, um, in an MDiv program after studying religion and sociology and knew even at that time that I wanted to do environmental ministry, um, knew that I felt closest to God and to other people and closest to myself when I was outside. Um, and, um, so I did that work um, in an MDiv program, and then I wrote a, um, I did a THM program um, doing ecofeminist theology and, and family systems theory, um, really digging into the, the ways in which the, the stories of creation and Genesis um, call us to be in, in, in an ecological family um, and to reclaim where we fit in the family of things. So... Um, that's how I got into ministry. Um, then I served a congregation in Palo Alto, which was completely opposite to the, my time at McCormick. (laughs) Um, and that's a culture shock. It was an absolute culture shock. I spent a lot of time being like, what am I doing here? Um, but I also had a good sense that that was God calling me to be listening, um, (laughs) and following directions instead of doing whatever I wanted. So, um, that's kind of my sense of call. Um, and I'm constantly reminded that from a very young age, um, my concepts of gender and race and ecology, um, were shaped differently than most people are in the United States as when we're white. So what exactly is ecofeminism and embodied pedagogy? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, yeah, so ecofeminist um, theory became an academic area in like the 1970s, but um, the concepts that it's that draws upon are, are really nearly timeless. Um, and what ecofeminist theory and and then theology says um, in a variety of different ways is that the way we interact with the earth is connected to how we interact with women and the feminine. Um, and when we, um, hurt the planet, we're, um, hurting women and the feminine first, and that women are, um, kind of when you divide out who has power in a society, men and human made things have power and, um, earth and women, um, have less power. Um, and of course that's a binary of gender that, um, that doesn't like shake out to include everybody, but the important thing is to say men and non-natural things, um, have more power than, than others. And so why is that? Uh, mostly patriarchy, right. Um, but that, um, that setup of power and that division comes, um, as 
far back as the the Greeks um, and um, the great chain of being <laughs> that says humans are above um, the rest of the earth, that it's God and then the angels and then humans and then the rest of the earth um, and all of created things. And actually by humans, what we really mean are um, wealthy property owning men. Um, and that kind of mentality has been enculturated into humans. Um, and, and of course, when I say all of that, I, I mean, um, Western culture, um, there's certainly been a different trajectory in, in Eastern traditions and religions. Um, and, and how's that, how's that different? I'm not familiar with it as much. So, um, um, particularly when I think about like indigenous communities, they've in the U.S. have um, have talked about the the mothering um, idea of God and have put power in matrilineal or yeah in mothering lines of culture. Um, I'm also just thinking about um, Hindu tradition and Hindu religious systems that um, venerate male and female and non-gendered gods um and um so that's a different cultural phenomenon and and kind of where you and i sit eric in u.s protestant world we've been um really shaped by um a religious tradition that does this bifurcation of earth and um not earth and man and woman and doesn't and it like really separates those out and doesn't see a lot of nuance. Um, and since his seventies, that, um, that division has become more and more blurry. Um, and, um, we, there's just been a lot of like theological and theoretical work that says, you know, we've been enculturated in this system and and now we need to dismantle it um to really understand that we're all and it's not healthy it's not healthy it's not healthy for anybody um and um or any part of creation yeah and i would suggest that i think it hurts it hurts the it hurts men Mm -hmm. as well because you know i i think i think in some ways men feel just as trapped and they're enculturated to not be able to share certain things, not, you know, they have to be the strong silent mm-hmm. type. And, and, and I feel like they're being isolated in a lot of ways. And, 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 and yeah. um, what's the word? Yeah. Not able to grow yeah. into their full selves. Exactly. Um, stunted. Stunted. That's a good word. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> See, so, I need a PhD to help me out with that. You do. That's the thing. Um, <laughs> Just teaches we you need that our PhDs. And, and right. Um, so, yeah. So um, ironically, yeah. So ironically, I'm a PhD student, um, really committed to an embodied pedagogy. Um, and kind of part of that um, bifurcation of men and women and earth and not earth um, is also mind and body. And we put mind with those with power and body with with those without power, um, and, um, kind of living into this embodied pedagogy means that we learn and teach, um, honoring the, the whole self, the whole body. Right. Um, and, um, in my work and my teaching, it means that, um, I'm constantly thinking about different learning styles, um, thinking about how we invite our bodies to be a part of, of, um, 
uh, education and in the class that I just finished teaching this semester at McCormick, um, (laughs) every week the students had something to, had music to listen to, a video to watch, um, a, a physical activity to do, which was often going for a walk and paying attention to what they saw and heard. Um, there was an option to write or to, to do some, um, artistic creation. Um, and that kind of pedagogy says that, um, and helps create a, a sense of fullness so that everybody in the class, um, can bring their whole selves and you're not solely reading or, um, or listening to lectures, but, um, and so how, how did the students respond to that? Um, they loved it. I mean, it was such an interesting thing to kind of in this particular semester, I had to redo the second half of the syllabus, um, halfway through the semester because of the pandemic and there's a pandemic going on. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't heard about that. Yep. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and you know, it's just a sneaky thing. Um, but really kind of saying to the students, you know, part of your grade and part of it as you as we live through this pandemic is surviving and 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 really saying, you know, we carry trauma and hard things in our bodies. And when we carry those things in our bodies, it makes it harder to pay attention. It makes it harder to retain what we learn. It makes it harder to show up Um it makes it harder to show, um, to follow through. And so <laughs> to just say, look, you don't have to read 50 pages this week. Um, you have to read 15 and then survive. Right. Mm. Um, and really the students and I, and my co-teacher, we all kind of fell into this pattern of saying, okay, how do we show up with as our full selves um, and learn what we need to learn about this is a class on vocation and discernment. And so like really digging into the question of who's God calling us to be in the middle of a pandemic, what do we do when God <laughs> calls us to something and then the, the world happens. Right. And, and so we have to respond and this is a really reformed theological thing, right. That we're constantly connected, um, to the world and that, that God is calling us to show up in the world. And, um, so it's great. It was a really incredible class. Um, and, and I think that's a really good example of what it means to do embodied pedagogy to, to show up with our full selves and to learn using all the different parts of our, um, our bodies and ourselves. And, and I feel like one criticism, I think, of the Reformed faith, and I think that is actually, quote, embodied, if I may use that word, in Presbyterians, is that we we bifurcate ourselves, we separate ourselves into mm. boxes, and we love to talk about theology, we love to talk about our faith, but doing our faith, being our faith, living into what it means to be a child of God, we're not always as good at that. Which I think mm-hmm. is a good transition to your work in the fossil free PCUSA movement as far as trying to organize Presbyterians around climate justice. Mm-hmm. What's what's that been like given all of this um, the, the ecofeminism and the embodied pedagogy that you've been that you've been working with and trying to, I assume, embody yourself, what's that been like for you? Especially as we have General Assembly coming up, which is going to be very different this year. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, General Assembly online. Woo. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. So I joined the movement to divest from fossil fuels in the Presbyterian Church at its inception um, and have had the great privilege of, of walking with the people who wanted to start the movement in the Presbyterian Church and helping them figure out the Presbyterian polity that they needed to know in order to write the first overture um, and then felt called to, to stay in the movement. Um, and I'm writing my dissertation on this movement. Oh, um, wow. Okay. So my whole life is divestment from fossil fuels in the Presbyterian church. Wow. Um, but what I have, I also have the, the privilege of um, having spent most of my professional life doing environmental work in the Presbyterian church. Um, I have watched as, as our church has been a leader in passing policies and um, statements and liturgy um, at all levels of our denomination, trying to make sense of climate change and responding to it. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we thought the overture to divest from fossil fuels was going to be a slam dunk that mm. first year because it was saying, hey, look, we've done all this other stuff with our whole selves as Presbyterians to respond to climate change. And so let's just like also be a part of this movement with our, with our treasure, with, with our investments. Let's divest from fossil fuels um, as the, the biggest contributor to, to climate change. Let's, let's do that. And we found that people overwhelmingly felt threatened by that. And also felt like we needed to do more in order to be worthy of divesting. That if we didn't, as a denomination, as individuals, as congregations, didn't do everything perfectly in order to respond to climate change, we if we divested, we would be hypocrites. Oh. Um, okay. And as a reform, right? So like this, like this is the big thing. And, well, and that that gets to that bifurcation that we like yes. to talk about it, but when it comes time to actually say, wait a minute, this, this raises all kinds of questions in other areas of our lives as well. We're not as happy about that. Well, and I think too, it's this, this fear of not being good enough too, that if we make the stand, people will say, well, who's the Presbyterian church to, to divest from fossil fuels? They're still driving cars. They're still eating meat. They're still using, um, disposable, whatever, um, which, all of those issues are larger systemic issues um, that I could talk about for hours on end, but um, I won't. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it comes back to this. If we don't think we're good enough to, to divest, we don't think we've done enough to be profits. Um, and I, what I think is so important for us as Presbyterians is to say, look, we're never enough. Our theological tradition tells us that we're never enough. We will never do ecological work perfectly. We'll never do anything perfectly or enough to, to save the planet or to save ourselves. And God loves us anyways and calls us into this work to keep trying and to keep bringing our whole selves into the work Um to respond to God's call on our lives to be connected to all things with our whole selves. Um, and we do that 
understanding that we're not enough, um, understanding that we will never, um, like eat the right food or drive the right car, understanding that we won't ever get rid of all of the disposable water bottles or drink the right coffee or pray the right liturgy. Um, And understanding that even if we did all of those things, like the system is, the ecological system is so broken, it doesn't solve anything. Um, And so the call for divestment has, from fossil fuels, um, has been a movement to, to really live into this, the sense of call to, to love God and to love creation and to love each other with our whole selves, including our investments, knowing that we won't do that perfectly, but knowing that we do it imperfectly, trusting God's grace to meet us in that imperfection, which is what we just do as (laughs) it's what we do as Christians and as Presbyterians all the time. Right. Um, But, but I feel like Calvin's whole total depravity thing has kind of screwed us up. And, and that could go two ways. It could be, it could screw us up to we're never good enough. So why even try Right. to we're never going to be good enough. So let's keep messing up and keep trying to do the right thing anyway. Yeah. And we seem to lean toward the former rather yes. than, the, than the latter. Yes. And we're afraid to step out because, well, I don't like to be called a hypocrite. Right. And I remember I, Reverend Mark Adams is the executive, one of the, um, leaders of the Frontera de Cristo order uh-huh, ministry uh-huh. in Douglas, Arizona. And he, he got up one day in our, in our pulpit and, and basically said, Hey, I'm a sinner. How about you? (laughs) And, and I, and I love the fact that, you know, we need to own that. Yeah. I, we're never going to be good enough, but that doesn't mean we can't stop trying that or that we should stop trying. Yeah, exactly. You know, Paul talks about that. You know, should we just keep sinning? Should we sin more so that grace will abound? Well, no, that's not how it works. Right. Right. And like, of this is where I think actually the story of the prodigal son is super helpful at intersection of the total depravity doctrine, right? To say like, the point isn't that the son keeps throwing away his father's money. He comes back and says, I have screwed up. Right. And the father says, I'm so glad you're back. Knowing that the son's probably going to go run away again and spend all his money. But the father, up again. right? And but the yeah. what the father's concerned about is right now. How do I get to love this son of mine, who's a total screw up and is still mine? Um, so that's the work that I do. Well, and and the part of the son to accept that love yes. and never not yeah. feel like yeah. I need to keep trying to earn this love that's that's free and already there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have to keep working for that. I need what I need to do is is honor this relationship. I feel like it. That's the thing. I don't. I don't think we we necessarily we keep trying to earn God's the God's favor, but at the same time, it's why don't we live into the relationship that God's given? Mm-hmm. And so, I, I guess my next question is, what is and that this is the question I always ask. What does that look like in practical everyday? terms. So you'd mentioned water bottles, you mentioned coffee, you mentioned, <laughs> you know, we drive cars. I, I admit I, I have an F-150. It's a gas guzzler, you know, and, and by, by some standards, um, you know, I, I use it as a truck, but I, I still have one. Could I do better? Could I do things differently? Yes. And in some ways I have, and I do, but in a lot of ways I, I don't. So what is, what does it look like on a daily basis for people to try and live into that part of being a Christian, being one who follows in the way of Christ, who tries to make the world a better place, not just for myself, but for everybody. 
Yeah. Including and especially the most vulnerable, the ones that are really getting screwed by everything that we throw away. Yeah. Which is often, I mean, I'm always struck by the language of um, human and less than human or more than human and um, that environmentalists use um, to talk, to try to explain like all the different parts of the ecological system. Um, And mostly I'm just like, uh, there's a lot of parts to the ecological family and uh, one part is human. And then there's all the other parts that also matter. Um, And so I'm just, I'm thinking humans are part of that. Right. And humans are one part of that huge piece. Right. Um, Yeah. And um, pretty significant part because we're the ones that are seem to be affecting it the most. Yeah. I mean, yeah in terms of what we can measure and what we know how to measure. Yeah, absolutely. So like every day, like what can you do, right? This is the question that people ask me all the time. And when I'm feeling pastoral, I say, oh, you just try um, all the different things. And (laughs) every day you wake up and, you know, try to eat super local, get rid of your disposable water bottle, get a different car so that you don't use as much gas, stop flying. Um, don't give your money to companies like Apple or Exxon. Don't have too many kids. But we're so caught up in a, in a culture and a system right. that it is really hard to try to live and do those things that you're talking about because the culture is so powerful And like my job depends on doing these things. My, you know, so many people's jobs are require them to do things that they know Mm -hmm. are hurting the planet, but it's, well, what, what choice do I have here? Yeah. So I've actually got, I mean, get another job, but that's not necessarily always realistic either. Right. There's only a small group of people in the world who has the like economic and social power in order to, to make all of the changes that one can make. And, um, you know, this is... And the ones driving that culture, unfortunately, are the ones that are, you know... Right, are power. The companies yeah. that you talk yeah. about. So um, I live on a regenerative farm. Um, you use the language of sustainable, but we use the language of regenerative. Um, uh, oh, say more so about regenerative, that. What's, what's the difference? Um, re- regenerative means that we um, look at all of the different pieces um, of the farm and like see what affects other things. Um, so like we have chickens, not just so that we can eat their eggs, but, um, so that they can, um, so that their droppings will make the grass, um, more lush. And then when the grass gets, um, crimped down or pushed down on the ground, it makes the soil, um, healthier. Um, and so we live kind of in this cyclical world. So we're back to those those interconnected, yes. so super interconnected networks of relationships. Yeah. And and yeah. sustainable kind of brings up the language of like, what's the most green? And um, how vegan are you? Um, which isn't the world that we live in um, at the farm. But so, um, you know, I... Last General Assembly, a bunch of us from Fossil Free Peace USA um, and Presbyterian Peace Fellowship walked um, 200 miles to General Assembly um, because... That was part of the last couple days. exactly. And, um, you know, part of that was because at my core, I'm very snarky. And 
the general assembly <laughs> before that, that people kind of said to me, well, you flew here. So who are you to ask us to divest? How did you get here? And I wanted to be able to say in response, I walked, which allowed me to be super snarky. Um, and I got to do that, but I would, yeah, I'm a religious leader. That's very snarky. Um, of course, how did you get to the place where you started at the PCUSA I Center? I drove in my hybrid car. Um, so. Uh, but you still, uh, yeah. but you still had to do slope, that. Right? Like I still had to drive. It, it, it keeps going. It, right. Exactly. That's yes, my point. It's There's, not helpful. Yeah. Um, it's not helpful to literally anyone. Um, it just makes everybody frustrated and cranky. And, and um, you then fall down the hole of okay, what actually is sustainable? Is a hybrid vehicle actually more sustainable um, and more better for the earth than whatever car you said that you have that's a gas guzzler? I don't remember, um, right? Like, um, like, what's the most sustainable thing? Um, you know, there's all these components. Well, and there's questions about the batteries and the exactly. chemicals and what happens when yes. they don't work yes. anymore. Yes. And, and, and it and goes on and How are you mining all of this stuff, on. right? And so like, we don't even really know the answer to some of those things, um, which isn't to say don't, buy a Prius, but like maybe don't buy a brand new Prius and like throw away your car that you have. Well, my son's getting my hybrid. Oh. <laughs> I actually had a hybrid, but my son's getting that because he's getting his license. Amazing. Soon, so. Amazing. Gave me an excuse to go get a truck. Well, that, it's a, so maybe like unpack a, that a little bit. Um, thir- 13 year old car now. Yes. <laughs> still works. It still works. Right. So I live in, so I live on this farm in a single room. And I have a 10 year old Prius um, and wear mostly my sister's clothing. Um, And and I'm a vegetarian, um, mostly vegan and eat the eggs from our chickens. Um, That's only half a chicken, so. uh, Yeah, yeah, and just, uh, I, I don't really use plastic, there's, you know, I'm looking around my, my space right now and, um, there's no plastic in my, in my room at all. And most of the furniture is 50 years old and, uh, or more. And like, this is the life that I get to lead and, and I get to lead it because of the, like my ability to, to make the choices that allow me to, to do this. Um, and even though I make all of those choices, um, if I do a carbon footprint, um, like calculation, which everyone should do. Um, I'm still using too many earths. Um, my carbon footprint is too big. Oh, and I also am not invested in fossil fuels. My, my bank doesn't, um, fund the fossil fuel industry. Um, my phone is a used phone that isn't really, I mean, it's three generations back. Um, um, so all of that. Yeah. And because I live in the United States and I'm like governed by the economic policies of our, the U S it, none of what I do matters actually. Um, because of the collective emissions of, of our, our country. And, and yet I'm a happier human because, because of the life choices I've been able to make. But I'm flabbergasted. So with this shutdown, we, we got to see some pretty incredible satellite maps Yeah. of, you know, the, the, the reduction of pollution mm-hmm. and in, in major metropolitan areas, 
and what a major difference that mm -hmm. made. And there were some reports and some other articles that were put out saying, hey, over the last month, we've noticed this is actually regenerating. Hey, this is regenerating. Oh my gosh, we didn't realize. And, and in, in just a month's time of things shutting down, what a drastic change it made in the overall mm -hmm. um, well-being of, 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 of the earth. But it took a complete shutdown to do that. Right. Like systemic yeah. shutdown, right? Not individual right. people making the choice. It took systemic, global change, the system shutdown. Yeah. And now everybody's clamoring, when do we get back to normal? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, have we not understood that? Right. We first of all, there will never be back to normal. Right. Secondly, do we really want to go back? Well, and, and I, some people do because it's comfortable and it's known right. and it's scary to change. Right. And also it like pushes back on like it reminds me that we changed a lot of the like in-person systems, but we haven't changed our minds or changed our hearts or really made the connections between um the suffering of the planet and the suffering of ourselves um, because hmm. we haven't had to um, many of us, um, particularly in the U S and particularly those of us who are white. And yeah, so that's like, that's a, a thing that I've been thinking about is, is what does normal look like? How do we create a new normal um, that is more connected and also lighter on the planet? So along those lines, mm -hmm. getting back to general assembly, mm -hmm. what is the fossil free Presbyterians, yes. What is the what is the fossil free peace USA and the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship? Um, what's what is your approach to uh -huh. the um, to this coming GA, especially given the circumstances? Yeah. So General Assembly is happening virtually. Um, we pretty quickly. Um, Emily Brewer um, and I. Uh, uh, Emily's also a Presbyterian pastor, and she's the executive director of Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. Um, she and I pretty quickly um, as we began to understand that General Assembly would not be happening in person, um, wrote a letter to the Committee on General Assembly, um, the organizing body that made the, the decisions about how General Assembly was going to happen and said, um, <laughs> please don't have a month-long virtual General Assembly. That will make everyone crazy. Um, and Well, they're talking about doing it in three days. Well, they're not, I mean, it's different, right? They're not, they're, they've like completely changed how we think about what the, the work of General Assembly is, right? Um, and, and, and they've stripped the, they've stripped exactly what General Assembly is going to look at too, pretty significantly. Right. They said, here's the, like they said, here's what General Assembly is going to do. General Assembly is going to look at um, the administrative tasks, that are required that we have to do from the book of order. And a lot of progressive Presbyterians have said general assembly is supposed to do the social justice work of the church. And that's true. Like general assembly should have a social justice gospel. Or at least set the vision. Really, right. No, it should be part of setting the vision, but or part the, of setting the vision, yeah. the power of our denomination doesn't sit with general assembly. It sits at the presbytery level. The presbyteries are the ones that, um, change the um, the book of confessions. They're the ones who change the the book of order. Um, they're the ones who usually tell General Assembly what they're supposed to talk about. And so that's you know we can believe that General Assembly is the the place where social justice happens in the church, 
And I don't think that that's completely incorrect, but it's not completely correct because it's, the, it's not the whole picture. It's not the whole picture. And so Emily and I said, what are we going to, what are we going to do? Right. How do we help the social justice component of our church continue? And how do we help our church claim our power as Presbyterians at a Presbyterian congregational level? Um, and so, and, and how do we also like acknowledge that part of our grief about general assembly happening is that we want to be together yeah. um, and be in the same place and be with our people. And so um, one of the great matriarchs of Presbyterian peace fellowship, Marilyn said, made a joke about day camp and hmm. um, <laughs> we said, let's do that. Let's do day camp. Uh, be, mostly because when we're smart, we do what Marilyn says. And um <laughs> Because we should that's, listen that's to our matriarchs. It's not a bad matriarchs. way to go. Yes. It's not a bad way to go. She's, yeah. She's, yeah. So anyway, so Marilyn said, look, you know, and I think she was kidding. And we, we do things like walk 200 miles to General Assembly. So now we're having day camp. And day camp is going to happen in the, the days in between the official General Assembly stuff. Um, so there'll be teach-ins, daily devotionals, um, a time for vigils throughout Um the this day camp um and multiple um calls to action around the commitments that presbyterian peace fellowship holds dear particularly around gun violence excuse me anti-racism um liberation in palestine divestment from fossil fuels um, and many more um i'm sure i'm missing some too but um those are the big ones i think those are the big ones right and and um so day camp Peace Camp, as we're calling it, Presbyterian Peace Camp, um, has become the the place where we're organizing to get Presbyterians, people who've been connected to PPF and and not, um, to gather to learn about the work of social justice in the church, and then take social justice issues back to their presbyteries and organize in their presbyteries around um, ending gun violence divesting from fossil fuels, um, working for liberation and anti-racism um, in the church. Um, and so that will be a time for us to gather and be together in June. Um, but then also to lean into our power as Presbyterians um, and to do the work of the gospel in, um, in our Presbyteries and in our congregations, um, knowing that General Assembly has an important voice, but it's not the only voice of our church. Um, so I hope that when you release this, um, podcast, I hope you'll also include a link <laughs> to the, the registration page. Well, that's um, my question. So how do people get involved <laughs> in the Presbyterian peace camp? Yeah. So if you go to, um, presbypeacefellowship.org, um, there's a link to, um, peace camp and it's free to sign up. And there's Beautiful. even swag um, stuff we all get. Um, what would what would GA be without swag? Look, it's not GA without swag. We feel very strongly about that. So even um, though most of it ends up going in the trash when we get home, but yeah. Look, there's no plastic <laughs> in the swag. Um, <laughs> I come I like, home. I'm, I bring the swag home to my kids. I'm like, all right, guys, pick what you like. And then sure right. enough, it ends up on their floor and everywhere yes. else in the house yeah. and eventually yeah. in the trash. But yeah, yeah. still. Uh, everything that we're sending is uh, 
not everything, but uh, not everything is recyclable, but most of it will be. Um, nice, nice. And actually usable. Like you said, um, we keep trying. We just keep we trying. We keep trying. We keep trying, right? And so. Do what we can, when we can, and keep trying. Yeah. Um, so that's the plan. Um, that so, sounds exciting. Yeah. And then just like continuing to pivot to say who has power in the denomination and between general assemblies, how do we get them to think prophetically and bravely about caring for this earth, knowing that we won't do it perfectly. And yet the task is to do it even imperfectly um, and to meet God in that work. Um, you, you said, that is you said our the, greatest calling. Yeah. Yeah. You said the power of the Presbyterian, Presbyterian churches and the Presbyteries. And, and, and in some degree, I, I agree with you, but none of that would happen if, I mean, those ideas are being born in the local congregations yeah. and local congregations saying, Hey, what can we do? What should we be doing? What does it look like to be the church today? Uh, yeah. And, and they're going to the presbyteries and they're pressuring the presbyteries and they're keep bringing these things up. And finally the presbyteries and presbyteries are big ships to turn to just like the GA. Yeah. And they're sometimes slow to adopt as well, but I feel, I feel like more of that is starting to happen more often. And I think a lot of that is because the General Assembly, at least in recent years, has been taking some pretty bold steps, mm-hmm. uh, more so than we have in recent decades. Uh, the Presbyterian Church has always been, and throughout its history, been on the front lines of many of the social justice issues of the day. And we sort of got shy for a while, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I would say in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And then it started in the 2000s, we're sort of coming back to our roots and I think a lot of that is because there has been a vision that has been cast by the General Assembly and by our denominational staff that has emboldened and strengthened those who were in the local congregation saying, we've been doing this stuff for decades. Uh, You know, where have you been? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're feeling like, hey, our voices are actually being heard finally. And divestment is a slow slogging, difficult, sometimes painful process. We watched the, what it was it, 10 or 12 years uh, mm-hmm. for divestment from um, certain companies that were, that were part of the whole occupation between Israel and Palestine. And then we had a bombshell at our last General Assembly when the Board of Pensions got up and said, well, we haven't divested from any of those companies. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you don't, GA doesn't get to tell us We've stopped investing. We're no longer investing, but we haven't divested from any of those yeah. companies. So yeah. how does that change? Does that has how does that affect the strategy of Fossil Free PCUSA? And I know we only have about five or six minutes left here, but how has that changed the strategy of the Fossil Free PCUSA and the work that the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship has been doing in those lines as well? Yeah. So I um I mean I think for me it underlines just the, the boundary of power for General Assembly, that um, General Assembly can make, take a vote and, and decree something, but the other agencies of our denomination don't have to listen to them. Um, that says something about how power works in our denomination. Um, I think the Board of Pensions has been clear that um, they are... Um, accountable to people in the board of pensions and that they're more likely to listen to um, people who are organizing within the board of pensions. Um, yeah. They even said are, that if, if yeah. people started sending us letters, we'll, but we, right. we're, we're accountable to them first. Right. Before GA. Yeah. And so um, 
for those of you listening who are in the board of pensions, please do uh, call Frank Spencer and uh, tell him you want them to divest from fossil fuels. Um, feel nice. Please do that. Um, and, um, you know, I, on the one hand, I lost my mind when I heard them say that on the floor of General Assembly because I was just so angry um, about... Well, actually, they said just, it in a. It was in a site. It was in a committee, I think, when they yeah, said that because yeah. they were asked point blank about it. Yeah, and you know, I, I nearly lost my mind and watched a lot of other people lose their minds. Um, yeah, the whole room gasped. Yeah, and just, and also, <laughs> I'm just aware of like how many people heard that and like followed it, and then having followed up with board of pensions and been like, "What the hell." Right. Like I'm not a member of board of pensions. So Frank Spencer only sort of has to listen to me. Right. But like, (laughs) um, like, and he's good about like taking my emails and my phone calls. Like he's, he's a very kind man. Um, but he doesn't have to listen to me because I am not a member of board of pensions. Um, and so my hope and prayer is that people in the board of pensions go to him and say, you have to divest, right? Um, and, I, and and that's a thing that can happen whether or not General Assembly happens. And um, and so for us, particularly in Fossil Free, um, we understood that as kind of a challenge. Um, a challenge to say, look, we as Presbyterians have always been connect, uh, committed to the work to care for creation and have been unashamed about um, responding to climate change. Um, as Presbyterians, we ha- have followed the science and, and, and believed scientists when they've explained the science of climate change. Um, and for, for me in particular, it felt like a challenge to call the Presbyterian church to do all the things it can to respond to climate change. Um, if divestment isn't going to happen, um, there's so many other things that we can do. And honestly, as I mentioned before, I'm very snarky. I kind of was like, okay, well, it might take me four years to make you divest, but we will make you. Um, so it felt like a challenge. I'm also just really super mindful of the fact that um, it could be that the Board of Pensions has divested from fossil fuels in the last two months because it's not um, fiduciarily responsible to own the stocks as they become right worth now. negative amounts. Um, and the board of pensions has already divested from coal. Um, and, but they could quickly and easily reinvest if they feel that it's, cause again, they're going after the dollar. They're not necessarily, right. I but mean, they are, they, never... but they do have, don't they have, um, investment guidelines that tell them, Hey, these are things that we're not going to invest in. And they're um, supposed to be guided by those guidelines. And I believe they're internal to the Board of Pensions. I know the General Assembly also has guidelines and the Foundation has guidelines. And I thought the Board of Pensions and the Foundation oftentimes are use the General Assembly guidelines, but yeah. they don't have to. But they so have internal is, guidelines that also talk about um, socially uh, responsible investing, yeah. I think is yeah. what they call it. Yeah. So this is my understanding of how the Board of Pensions is working. And I need to put a caveat on the fact that I learned this information from a a staff person of the board of pensions a a couple of years ago. And that what's, if I could remember his name, I would tell you because it's not a secret. 
Um, it's not what he told me was not a secret. Um, and the caveat is that it was a couple of years ago. So information can, can and does change. Um, but what he said to me is that the board of pensions has like 20 different funds in the pension, um, that they're managing. And one of those funds is the, um, PCUSA fund. And that fund is the one that um, is governed by the rules um, that General Assembly has created over time around um, divest or not being invested in um, what's called sin stocks. So um, yeah. things like gambling. So that's the social responsible. What is it called? Socially responsible investing or something. Like, there's some policy. Yes, exactly. And so unless you opt into that fund as a member of the board of pensions. You aren't in that fund. Um, So also to all of your listeners, if you haven't done that opting in, um, there's another fund. So there's, there's 20, there's approximately 20 funds. One of them is the PCUSA fund. The other one is the fossil free fund. Um, And you have to pick between those two if you want either of those things. And then the other 18 are, more um, quote unquote traditionally managed to make as much money as possible, regardless of um, the um, the ramifications or the, like the social consequences, whatever. Um, yeah. And all of that's public information, um, which means anybody in the board of pensions can ask for that information and also opt into either of the two. But you have um, to know to ask. Yep, that's the challenge, and they don't exactly advertise all that. Nope. I don't think they advertise that very well. I know about it, but it's hard to find on the board of pension site. Yeah. And I will say too, that like, I, I think it was Keenan at board of pensions. Keenan is a great, great human and, uh, and explained all of this to me. Um, so it's not meant to be, uh, a secret, right? Like, uh, uh, shouldn't be. Yeah, it's not a secret. Um, you so. just have to know who to ask and and how to ask it. So, Abby, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have another Thanks. meeting to run off to. So thank you so much for coming on the Faith and Coffee Brewcast and for having the conversation. And know that uh, we will be watching and I'll be watching and uh, registering for that peace camp. I haven't yeah. yet, but I will. And I Great. hope others will too. We'll see you all at Peace Camp. And please keep doing what you're doing and keep 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 calling us all and being snarky and helping us be accountable. Because <laughs> we love it. Some of us love it. Many of us many of us love it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. I, I appreciate you and all you do. So blessings to you. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Be of good courage. Know that you are loved and have a great day. The opinions expressed in this episode do not and are not intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. Check out the Faith and Coffee Brewcast at brewcast.faithandcoffee.com or on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Faith and Coffee blog at faithandcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faith and coffee. Be sure to click on that like button. Faith and Coffee is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC in Chandler, Arizona. You can contact Faith and Coffee at eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com.